This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy Book Two The Arrival Three How a Little Sound Produced a Great Dream Eustatia stood just within the heath, straining her eyes in the direction of Mrs. Yobright's house and premises. No light, sound, or movement was perceptible there. The evening was chilly, the spot was dark and lonely. She inferred that the guest had not yet come, and after lingering ten or fifteen minutes, she turned again towards home. She had not far retraced her steps when sounds in front of her betokened the approach of persons in conversation along the same path. Soon their heads became visible against the sky. They were walking slowly, and though it was too dark for much discovery of character from aspect, the gait of them showed that they were not workers on the heath. Eustatia stepped a little out of the foot-track to let them pass. They were two women and a man, and the voices of the women were those of Mrs. Yobright and Thomasin. They went by her, and at the moment of passing appeared to discern her dusky form. There came to her ears in a masculine voice, Good night. She murmured a reply, glided by them, and turned round. She could not for a moment believe that chance, unrequested, had brought into her presence the soul of the house she had gone to inspect, the man without whom her inspection would not have been thought of. She strained her eyes to see them, but was unable. Such was her intentness, however that it seemed as if her ears were performing the functions of seeing as well as hearing. This extension of power can almost be believed in at such moments. The deaf Dr. Kitto was probably under the influence of a parallel fancy when he described his body as, as having become, by long endeavour, so sensitive to vibrations that he had gained the power of perceiving by it as by ears. She could follow every word that the ramblers uttered. They were talking no secrets, they were merely indulging in the ordinary vivacious chat of relatives who have long been parted in person, though not in soul. But it was not to the words that Eustatia listened. She could not even have recalled a few minutes later what the words were. It was to the alternating voice that gave out about one-tenth of them the voice that had wished her good-night. Sometimes his throat uttered yes, sometimes it uttered no. Sometimes it made inquiries about a time-worn denizen of the place. Once it surprised her notions by remarking upon the friendliness and geniality written in the faces of the hills around. The three voices passed on, and decayed and died out upon her ear. 
Thus much had been granted her, and all besides withheld. No event could have been more exciting. During the greater part of the afternoon she had been entrancing herself by imagining the fascination which must attend a man come direct from beautiful Paris, laden with its atmosphere, familiar with its charms. And this man had greeted her. With the departure of the figures, the profuse articulations of the women wasted away from her memory. But the accents of the other stayed on. Was there anything in the voice of Mrs. Yobright's son, for Klim it was, startling as a sound? No, it was simply comprehensive. All emotional things were possible to the speaker of that good night. Eustatia's imagination supplied the rest, except the solution to one riddle. What could the tastes of that man be who saw friendliness and geniality in these shaggy hills? On such occasions as this, a thousand ideas pass through a highly charged woman's head, and they indicate themselves on her face. But the changes, though actual, are minute. Eustatia's features went through a rhythmical succession of them. She glowed. Remembering the mendacity of the imagination, she flagged. Then she freshened, then she fired, then she cooled again. It was a cycle of aspects produced by a cycle of visions. Eustatia entered her own house. She was excited. Her grandfather was enjoying himself over the fire, raking about the ashes and exposing the red-hot surface of the turfs, so that their lurid glare irradiated the chimney-corner, with the hues of a furnace. "'Why is it that we are never friendly with the Yobrites?' she said, coming forward and stretching her soft hands over the warmth. "'I wish we were. They seem to be very nice people.' Oh, "'Be hanged if I know why,' said the captain. "'I like the old man well enough, though he was as rough as a hedge.' But you would never have cared to go there, even if you might have, I'm well sure. Why shouldn't I? Your town tastes would find them far too countrified. They sit in the kitchen, drink mead and elder wine, and sand the floor to keep it clean. <laughs> A sensible way of life. But how would you like it? I thought Mrs. Yobright was a ladylike woman. A curate's daughter, was she not? Yes, but she was obliged to live as her husband did. And I suppose she's taken kindly to it by this time. Ah, I recollect I once accidentally offended her, and I've never seen her since. That night was an eventful one to Eustatia's brain, and one which she hardly ever forgot. She dreamt a dream and few human beings, from Nebuchadnezzar to the Swatham Tinker, ever dreamt a more remarkable one. Such an elaborately developed, perplexing, exciting dream was certainly never dreamed by a girl in Eustatia's situation before. It had as many ramifications as the Cretan labyrinth, 
as many fluctuations as the northern lights, as much colour as a parterre in June, and was as crowded with figures as a coronation. To Queen Scheherazade the dream might have seemed not much far removed from commonplace, and to a girl just returned from all the courts of Europe it might have seemed not more than interesting. But amid the circumstances of Eustace's life it was as wonderful as a dream could be. There was, however, gradually evolved from its transformation scenes a less extravagant episode in which the heath dimly appeared behind the general brilliancy of the action. She was dancing to wondrous music, and her partner was the man in silver armour who had accompanied her through the previous fantastic changes, the visor of his helmet being closed. The mazes of the dance were ecstatic. Soft whispering came into her ear from under the radiant helmet, and she felt like a woman in paradise. Suddenly these two wheeled out from the mass of dancers, dived into one of the pools of the heath, and came out somewhere beneath into an iridescent hollow arched with rainbows. "'It must be here,' said the voice by her side, and blushingly looking up she saw him removing his cask to kiss her. At that moment there was a cracking noise, and his figure fell into fragments like a pack of cards. She cried aloud, "'Oh, that I had seen his face!' Eustacia awoke. The cracking had been that of the window-shutter downstairs, which the maid-servant was opening to let in the day, now slowly increasing to nature's meagre allowance at this sickly time of the year. "'Oh, that I had seen his face!' she said again. "'Twas meant for Mr. Yobright!' When she became cooler, she perceived that many of the phases of the dream had naturally arisen out of the images and fancies of the day before. But this detracted little from its interest, which lay in the excellent fuel it provided for newly kindled fervour. She was at the modulating point between indifference and love, at the stage called having a fancy for. It occurs once in the history of the most gigantic passions, and it is a period when they are in the hands of the weakest will. The perfervid woman was by this time half in love with a vision. The fantastic nature of her passion, which lowered her as an intellect, raised her as a soul. If she had had a little more self-control, she would have attenuated the emotion to nothing by sheer reasoning, and so have killed it off. If she had had a little less pride, she might have gone and circumambulated the Yobrite's premises at Bloom's End at any maidenly sacrifice until she had seen him. But Eustacia did neither of these things. She acted as the most exemplary might have acted, being so influenced. She took an airing twice or thrice a day upon the Egdon Hills, 
and kept her eyes employed. The first occasion passed, and he did not come that way. She promenaded a second time, and was again the sole wanderer there. The third time there was a dense fog. She looked around, but without much hope. Even if he had been walking within twenty yards of her, she could not have seen him. At the fourth attempt to encounter him, it began to rain in torrents, and she turned back. The fifth sally was in the afternoon. It was fine, and she remained out long, walking to the very top of the valley in which Bloom's End lay. She saw the white paling about half a mile off, but he did not appear. It was almost with heart-sickness that she came home, and with a sense of shame at her weakness. She resolved to look for the man from Paris no more. But providence is nothing if not coquettish, and no sooner had Eustatia formed this resolve then the opportunity came which, while sought, had been entirely withholden. End of chapter 3